Thanks for joining us here on the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsaniego.com. Uh, we are in the middle of a series called Life to the Full. Uh, which is not only a Bible verse, but it's the central theme of John's gospel. That his, his whole thesis in writing the, bio, the biography of Jesus' life is that if you believe, you will have life. And we spent a lot of time talking about what kind of life he's talking about, what kind of belief he's talking about. And today's just another step in that direction. But rather than telling a story that happened, uh, John highlights a conversation that happens. So we're going to be looking about, at a dialogue, a dialogue specifically around the idea of new birth, or if you've, if you've grown up in the church, of being born again. Um, it's a term that's kind of thrown around a lot, and to be honest, it's kind of a strange one. Uh, specifically, if you haven't kind of grown up with that colloquialism, it's just odd. Um, and the first time it's brought up in scripture, it's odd. Uh, so today, we're going to be kind of looking at this dialogue going on between a guy named Nicodemus and Jesus, and hopefully let that shine light on what God's heart and desire for us in experiencing new birth and being born again, and what does that look like, and then um, really, really excited. 8 a.m. was just really a, I think a beautiful time together. I'm excited for just God's spirit to move again. And by the way, if this just feels too crowded for you, 8 a.m. is a great place to land. There's a little bit more space. It was a little bit more full this week, but there's a little bit more space if you like that. Um, but, but this idea, I love that in this conversation of new birth or being born again, it's, it's kind of uh, odd. And uh, Nicodemus doesn't kind of know what to do with it. And it was interesting, one time I remember walking in on my daughters, having a conversation about what they remembered about being born. And I was like, oh, interesting. And they're like bragging to one another about like how much they remembered about being born. Like, oh yeah, that hospital room was just gross. And like, and my nurse was so nice. I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, one of them actually was like, it's like I was so brave, I didn't even cry. I'm like... I'm like, no, like you did, and like you, I'm pretty sure you you had very little to do with that, much less remember anything that went on that day, and um, and I think sometimes maybe when God looks at us from the Father's heart and we talk about being born again or new birth, sometimes we may give ourselves more credit than we deserve. Sometimes I think you wonder if you listen, it's like, man, they really think they did all that, didn't they? Because what we're going to find in this dialogue is so much of new birth is a work of the Spirit. It, it does require our belief and our faith. It doesn't mean that we're inactive in it. But I think what we're going to find today is a really beautiful illustration of the gospel. It's the good news that Jesus, his Spirit, is what causes new life in us. So turn with me to John chapter 3 as you do. If you're taking notes, just our four points we're going to be going through this morning. Number one, we're talking about how we are born into the night. Night is a metaphor uh, for us feeling lost or unseen. Secondly, what we see through this dialogue is Jesus talking about being reborn of the Spirit. And we're going to talk about what does that mean? What is the implications of that for today? Thirdly, that, that rebirth is connected to our belief in an exalted Christ. 
And lastly, that all of this is a process. This is maybe the best news in all of this is that there is definitely a process that's happening here. So John chapter three, we're gonna read the first 15 verses and stop right before the most famous verse in the Bible, which we'll talk about next week. John chapter three, verse one says this. Now, there was a Pharisee, actually, let me pause. When we read this, I want you to pay attention to the tone you feel like Jesus is giving off. What is, what is Jesus emoting in this moment in his dialogue? What kind of emotions would you imagine Nicodemus is feeling? So as we read this, don't just read this for information, but I want you to insert yourself into the story. What, what's Jesus' tone like um, in your own imagination? What, was, what would be Nicodemus's tone or reaction like? And hopefully through the study, we'll be able to take what we think and let Again, God speak into that and form that. So now there is a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who is a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. So it kind of opens up with a comment, not a question. This kind of says, there's something about what you're doing. And Jesus, Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Weird rebuttal. <laughs> he pays him a compliment. He says, you can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Obviously, <laughs> he responds, how can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You're Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and what we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who's come from heaven, the son of man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Then the dialogue just abruptly ends. John continues to kind of give some, um, through the Holy Spirit, kind of, get, kind of works around it, but we never hear what happens to Nicodemus. He just, the conversation just stops. We don't know if he stayed there for brunch. We don't know if like he got on his knees and like had an altar call. We, we don't know what happened after this dialogue. Just a very peculiar conversation back and forth. And so our goal today is to kind of work through these different kind of themes that we see through the story, beginning with Jesus's comment to Nicodemus, says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now, in order to understand kind of how abrupt that statement would have been, we have to understand a little bit about Nicodemus. Now, he get, 
John gives us some clues in, for how us to think about him as a person. Number one, it says that he was a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jewish council. By the way, very uncommon to have both because that means he was a part of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So let me kind of give you just some background work here. Pharisees were um, oftentimes kind of were part of the more conservative group, highly valued the scriptures. They um, believed that not only they should follow the Torah, but the laws and traditions surrounding the Torah, reaching into the thousands. Uh, And they believed everyone else should too. And they believed that in order for God to come and to save their people, that everyone had to live this rigid and religiously devoted life. So he's one of those. Which, by the way, in that time was, I think in nowadays, kind of a religious elite person has this negative connotation. In that day, they had a ton of influence. Being a religiously devoted person to the level of a Pharisee would have had tremendous cultural clout in that day. But he was also a part of this other camp called the Sadducees, or the kind of the Jewish council. And they were not conservative. They were more progressive and liberal, didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, didn't really follow the Torah other than kind of for cultural reasons, um, but had probably more of a socio-political influence in that day. And so they would have had more of the money. Uh, they would have had more of the ties with Rome. And so Nicodemus is introduced in the very first sentence, if you're one of the original audience people who would have heard this story, you would have immediately been like, this guy has it all, right? He's highly educated, born into a good family. He's got friends. He has money. I mean, this, he, this would have been a very short but a strong definition that Nicodemus had everything that would have been important to that day. So imagine someone in, in our day and age that you would have can, could kind of ascribe that to. It just seems like life goes well for them, right? They're educated, they test well, they look good, they have money. This is kind of how we're introduced to Nicodemus. But here's what's interesting. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Now, there's two things going on here. Number one, it's, it's kind of obvious. Like he's coming to night, at night because he's scared. He doesn't want to be picked up by some of his other Pharisee friends or even some of the Sadducee friends of saying like, oh man, like you were a follower of this new rabbi from, from the north in Galilee. And so he comes discreetly at night and that, that's kind of an obvious point. But there is a more subtle point that John is making and it's a literary point that every time John uses the word night in the entire book of John, it's in contrast to the kingdom of light. So by saying he's coming at night, he's not just describing a detail of the story. He's telling us a detail about Nicodemus' soul and life. That if we just look at how John uses this word, it's not just talking about like, and he came at this hour. He's saying, no, no, no. This guy who had it all wasn't seeing, which is why when Jesus, he comes in kind of like, like any influential person does and just comes and compliments him, just like comes in. It's like, man, there's something about you. Like we know that there's, God must be behind you because no one could do what you're doing. And Jesus cuts through all of that and just says, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And just essentially calls him blind. You came at night, you're blind. You can't see the kingdom of God which is incredibly alarming for someone whose entire life is hurt. He has it all. And so you can, it's it's easy to just see Nicodemus' response here is just shock. He's like, wait, what'd you say? Unless 
You, or you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. Even Nicodemus' name means victory of the people. Now, again, I don't want to read too far into this, but it seems that John is letting us in that this was not the response Nicodemus was looking for. And I think it's where we have to begin this story, this great story about the gospel and God's grace. It's okay for us to begin with the reality that every one of us finds our relationship with God in a beginning point of the night. We can't see. There's something that we have to begin with that confession. And you look at someone like Nicodemus who had it all, and for him, to, for him, Jesus looks at him and says, with all of that, you don't see it. And so for us to, to enter into this story today, we all have to come from a place of saying, we're all in the night. We're born naturally into the night. We cannot See, I think it's fascinating that when babies are born, everything that they need to be able to see as clearly as we do is, is within their eyes. Yet when they're born, they can only see eight to 10 inches in front of them. They, can, they can't see vivid colors yet. And a lot of doctors, they can't prove this, but I actually believe they see upside down. Um, because that's how, if you ever look at through a camera lens or you do, our retinas receive images upside down and our brain flips them for us, which is kind of trip. And I think that, that that natural state of where we're born in our eyes is very similar to our spiritual state before we meet Jesus. We can see very close only what's in front of us, what we're feeling, what's in our circumstances. We can't see the beauty and the vividness of life that comes through the, the lens of the gospel. And to be honest, even the world around us is completely flipped upside down. And I think that when we come to Jesus, we, we have to begin at this place saying that, like, we don't come to Jesus saying, hey, I got it all figured out, Jesus. Let's see if you work in my worldview. I'm going to come and question and see if Jesus really works for me. And I think for us, that doesn't work. We have to come in with the, this, this confession of saying, man, I, I can't see. Think about this story later on in the Gospels where a blind man is healed and he's being drilled by the Pharisees. Like, who healed you? And I love his response, kind of flabbergasted. He just says, I don't know who this guy was. All I know is I was blind and now I can see. So I think it begins there. It begins with an acknowledgement and a recognition. We are born in the night. But then in verse five, it says, Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God. And there's that verbiage in the kingdom of God, God's rule and reign, his presence, his dominion. No one can enter that space unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, I love this line, you should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The Greek word could also be translated born above or reborn. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Problem with the translation in our English Bibles, that word wind, the wind blows wherever it pleases, you hear the sound, is the same word it just used four other times for spirit. And the translators, at least in, in the NIV, translated that as wind. And I think it's, a, it's an okay translation because in the Greek language, the word for breath, wind, and spirit are all one word. 
But if we can, if we're seeing spirit, 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 what if we read it like this? You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The spirit blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. So right here, Jesus says a couple really interesting things. Number one, he says, you should know this, which is not what you want to tell a Jewish intellectual. It's a really derogatory term. You should, know, you should have figured this out. You should know this. But then he gets really ambiguous. And he says, look, at, flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. And the spirit blows wherever it wills. And he kind of gives this ambiguous, mysterious kind of understanding of the work of the spirit. So he says, you should have known this. And at the same time, it's kind of like this. And so the, kind of the question that should rise in our mind is, why would Jesus assume that Nicodemus would know this? What would, in, in, in Jesus' heart, be like, you should have already picked this up. If you knew who I was, if you really thought I was from God, then this should have started to connect the dots for you. And here's why. There are a lot of prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about the coming Messiah being marked by God's spirit being poured out. A new birth, a new heart, the spirit bringing new life. I just want to read you some of them. And, and man, these are, these are ministered to me this week. I, just want to, I don't want to just read them for context sake. Let these speak to each one of your hearts. If this is the work of what the spirit does, when Jesus came and he gave us access to the Holy Spirit, this is the promises that are being fulfilled. Isaiah 44, 3 says, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Isaiah 59, verse 21 says, As for me, this is my covenant with them. Speaking of the new covenant, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you will not depart from you, and my words that I put in your mouth will always be on your lips and on your lips of your children, on the lips of their descendants. From this time on and forever, says the Lord. Ezekiel says, I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. What a beautiful imagery that is. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. This is covenant language here. Joel chapter two says, and afterward, this is talking about the day of the Lord, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughter will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I'll pour out my spirit in those days. Psalm 51.10, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. So all throughout the Old Testament, we see this reoccurring theme that as they look to the future promise of a coming Messiah, with it is this link of a new heart, a new birth that comes from the Spirit of God that will not just be given to the, the people who have earned it, were born in the right family, who have studied the law enough, followed the law enough. It'll be poured on everyone. So Jesus, in this moment, is looking at this man who has it all and looks at him and says, you should know this. You should know this. Listen, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You have to be born again. You have to experience new birth. 
And I think this can speak to every one of us. If I were to have just coffee with you and I, and I asked you this question, how, how do you know, how do you know that you are connected with God? You're in right relationship with God as assuming that you have belief in, in this divine being. If you're like me, because I tried to value my own heart, I would immediately reach into my proverbial pocket and start pulling out some of my own like things that I do. I'm like, well, like read the Bible, you know, I go to church, you know, went to Bible college, I journal, like I try and love my wife, I, I worship, and, and all of a sudden I'm starting to bring up all of these things. And this story kind of speaks to this moment. It's like, let's put all of that away. Because Nicodemus could have spent a very long time trying to convince Jesus why he should be able to see and enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus just cuts right through and says, listen, Nicodemus, the only way you can enter and see the kingdom of God is if there is a new birth that happens inside of you. And it is a work of the spirit. And by the way, this spirit cannot be manufactured or manipulated by your good works or your good standing in society. Now, he leaves us with a point of what, what's our role. Because I think sometimes we can hear stuff like this and immediately it almost has a sense like, well, what do we do? Like, do we, it's just God is moving in us and we don't do anything. We just lay there, kind of let him like, okay, come. And Jesus kind of speaks to that because I love Nicodemus's next response. This is kind of our third point. His response is this, how can this be? I mean, Nicodemus's worldview is being flipped upside down right now. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. <laughs> Jesus, you're Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we've seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who comes from heaven, the son of man, Jesus, or just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. It just went from like weird to weirder, right? More weird, is that a word? I don't know. Um, but you're, you're kind of like, okay, cool, new birth. And then Nicodemus asks the question that, Honestly, all of us would ask, how can this be? And Jesus says, you're Israel's, you, you've got to know this. You're Israel's teacher. And he says, we're talking about earthly things, but you don't get earthly things. How am I supposed to speak of heavenly things? Because you can only speak about what you know about. And I'm the only one who's been to heaven. So I can't reveal these things to you. And then at the very end, he gives, he gives him the only the only thing for him to do with all of this information, because it's so much a work of the Spirit. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And everyone who believes, there it is again. Remember the, the two themes of John, belief and life. Everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. You know your job, your only job in all of this new birth is Nicodemus? If you want that, that kingdom life, you have to believe in the Son of Man who's going to be lifted up just like Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness. Let's, let's pause right there because that raises all sorts of other questions. If you haven't read through the Old Testament, or you're unfamiliar with the scriptures, you're immediately like, what? <laughs> Snakes raised up, 
Moses? Like, what's going on here? So let me just give you a little bit of context here. Uh, The people of God, the Israelites, have been rescued from Egypt. And as they've been rescued, you'd think they'd be thankful. But instead, not only do they complain, but at this point in the story, they actively rebel against God. A plague falls on the people, and snakes come out of nowhere, start biting people. It's really bad. That's, snakes are my worst fear in life. So I hate this story. I even hate talking about this story. I'm like, ugh, not me. I'd repent right then and there. Um, but then it says this in Numbers 21 eight. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who's bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake, put it up on a pole, Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. This word lifted up, John uses this word hypso in Greek, is used a few other times in his gospel. Every time it's an allusion to Jesus being crucified. When Jesus says they have to believe that the Son of Man has to be lifted up, he's speaking to the crucifixion. D.A. Carson says it like this. As the lifting up of the snake in the desert was God's provision for salvation from physical death for rebellious Israelites, so too the lifting up of the Son of Man in his crucifixion will be God's provision for salvation from eternal death for people from all nations, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And so you have this image Jesus uses something that would have been familiar for Nicodemus. You know that story in Numbers that you memorized in, in school when you were just a little Jewish boy? That story of Moses lifting up the snake in the wilderness. He says, that's me. I will be lifted up. And it's your belief in me that will open up your eyes to see the goodness and abundance of the life of the kingdom that I'm bringing. And as, as obscure as it sounds to us, this actually would have probably made a lot of sense to Nicodemus. Oh, you, that's you. You're the source of healing and salvation. And there's something about you being lifted up that's tied to that. I think it, it bears noting. It's a, it's a little bit of a, of a tangent, but I just wanted to just let you know, because I think it's so important that this idea of God being high and lifted up is not only an allusion to the crucifixion, but it's, it's an image that we have again and again, Old Testament to New Testament, of Jesus, of Yahweh, being enthroned in the heavens. And I think a lot of times when we have that, that vision of God being lifted up and high, it evokes this sense of holiness, which it should. But I wanted to read you a familiar passage about God being lifted up and how it can tie into what we're seeing here. Uh, has anyone ever heard the verse, God's ways are higher than our ways? It's kind of like just the thing we say. It's kind of a cliche now that we say all around. It's like, well, you know, God's ways are higher than our ways. And, you know, Green Bay Packers don't win or whatever. Like, okay, God, whatever. <laughs> Hypothetically. Um, we just kind of like to throw that out there. Like, yeah, whatever. God's ways are higher than our ways. I, w- I would love for you to actually to read you the context of that verse. It's a Bible. It's not just a saying. It's a Bible verse. But this Bible verse is, is found in the middle of a beautiful context. So when you think of Jesus high and lifted up, whether it's on the cross or whether it's sitting on the right hand throne of God, the most clear understanding of God's ways being higher than our ways, him being high and lifted up, I believe is articulated in Isaiah 55. 
when it says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Ever feel confused? That's totally fine. But let's be clear. God is not just boasting, like you can't understand how wise I am. He's talking about a specific attribute of his heart. If we go up a few verses to verse one, it says this, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters and you who have no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. These things say, listen, you don't have what the world says is a resource, is a valuable, you can still come. Come and, and, and drink and eat and be satisfied. Why spend your money on what is not bread and your labor on what is not and what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. Skip down to verse seven, says this. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the upright and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord. So here it is. The high and lifted up one, let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. It's not enough just to say he's other, he's high and lifted up, his ways are higher than our ways. It tells us specifically, how is he in his lifted up, glorified, raised state He's a God who abundantly pardons. He's a God who is filled with mercy. He's a God who says to the person who has nothing, you can come and eat and drink freely. He's a person who says to the person who has plenty, don't waste that on what won't fill you. Come and be dissatisfied in me. It's this beautiful picture that actually, if you look at that in the context of Nicodemus, makes a ton of sense. Jesus is saying the same thing. Listen, all of that stuff you've done that you have doesn't really matter. What matters is you have to have a new birth in your spirit. You have to be born again. And that doesn't happen because you've worked hard enough and you've studied long enough and you've been devoted, white knuckling it through your faith. None of that's gonna equate to what you need in the new birth. It'll only happen when you see me high and lifted up first on a cross, but then at the right hand of my father, understanding that it is me who abundantly pardons. You don't have to work for it. It's given to you. The abundant life you're seeking happens through belief. It's a gift. It's a receiving and a placing and trust in that God's grace is first and foremost enough for us. I mean, in in all of the cryptic ambiguity of this text, there is a beautiful conversation happening where Jesus is saying, take off that heavy load and pick up the gift that I'm giving you of new birth that happens simply through belief. And at the end of this, you would assume that Nicodemus would get on his knees and say, yes, Lord, this is what I want. This is what I need. I'm giving you my life. But it doesn't say that. It just stops until chapter 7. Chapter 7, we see Nicodemus show up again. In verse 45, it says, and by the way, this is, uh, Jesus has caused such, such an uproar that, uproar that the Pharisees are trying to kill him. They've hired God's guards to bring him back in. 
It says, finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man did, the guards replied. You mean he's deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? No. You can imagine Nicodemus being like, oh, none of the Pharisee, rulers of the Pharisees have believed in him. But this mob that knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier, and he was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? So Nicodemus kind of stands up for Jesus, like in this really subtle way. When they're like, we need to kill him, this guy's bad news, Nicodemus is like, well, he, doesn't he at least deserve to be heard? And this is like a, a, like a legal term, like doesn't he deserve a trial? And the Pharisees respond, they reply, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find a prophet does not come out of Galilee. So here's Nicodemus, probably two years later, we see him pop up again in the story where he's kind of being like, maybe, maybe we shouldn't kill him, let's at least give him a trial. Baby steps, right? Like he's kind of doing, there's something happening in his heart. And we don't see, and then that's kind of it. We don't hear from Nicodemus until chapter 19. And by the way, this is after Jesus has died. He's been crucified. It says, later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came out and took the body away. He was accompanied, listen to this, by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid because it was the Jewish day of preparation. And since the tomb was nearby, they lead Jesus there. I mean, do you guys, do you guys catch the beauty What's happening in this story, we're introduced to Nicodemus very early on at the beginning of Jesus' ministry with a conversation about new, new birth. And we don't see him until halfway through the story when Nicodemus doesn't get up and say, he's the Messiah. He just says, hey, maybe we should give this guy a chance for a trial. And that spirit, that wind you can't control kept working and kept searching. And all of a sudden, when everyone had abandoned him, the only two men that were left in Jesus' life was Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, taking 75 pounds of spices, which, by the way, the only other reference to 75 pounds was the amount that was given to a royal burial. So out of his own money, his own things, he takes what would have been given for a king and he brings it to Jesus and wraps his dead body. Man, there's something about this story that just gets me because when you read chapter three, I just am like, hurry up. Don't you get it? Like you're talking to the son of God, the Messiah, the one you're looking for. And nothing happens until three years later. 
when the spirit of God had done a new birth in Nicodemus' heart to the point where he had given up everything, not only, not only an unforeseeable amount of money through the burial spices, but his reputation, his safety, and by touching a dead body, gave up his right to even participate in the Passover the coming day. Because it was all about Jesus for him now. It was a new birth. And I just, I hear the story and I'm just like, I'm flooded with, with prayers for, for me, for our church. And this would be our story. D.A. Carson says, the fourth gospel unfolds, therefore. We see Nicodemus, an influential teacher of Israel, moving gradually, but surely from inquiry though through tentative support to public confession of faith in Jesus. He functions as another example of the sort of belief that the evangelist hoped this gospel would evoke in his readers. It's a process. It's a beautiful process. It says later on in one of the epistles in the New Testament that God's patience is perfect. So a few things I want us just to kind of work through in our own hearts and lives. Number one, if you are here, you found yourself in a church because there's something like Nicodemus that has drawn you to, to who, something maybe you can't even describe, but you're, you're looking and longing for something. You need to hear this. All of us are in darkness apart from the new birth we have in Jesus. It's a work of the Spirit. It's the Spirit who gives us new birth. And that comes not through a bunch of work and just sign me up for every class. I'm not going to miss a day of this, and I'm going to work really hard. Listen, if your devotion is coming from a place of affection, that's one thing, but if you're trying to earn God's love or right relationship with him, you are wasting your time But if you truly have had the Holy Spirit has begun to work his new birth in your life, what that will look like is over time, you will find yourself looking at Jesus and saying, you're worth everything. You're worth everything. You're, I don't need to look back at my old life because your life itself, you are abundant life. You're the way, the truth, and the life. You're it. And my, my hope is that there'd be people in this room, and I don't know where you're at. I think some of you guys have never placed your trust or belief in Jesus Christ. And God right now in this moment is working in, in you. And again, my tendency would be like, well, let's, let's have people raise their hands. And, and for today, not that that's a bad thing all the time, for today, we're not going to have people raise their hands or make a public sign because this is what I want to do. I want to turn this over to the Holy Spirit. And believe that there's people in this room that God's working in your heart. And some of you guys, are today is a massive step in the right direction. Maybe today is the day that you come and you surrender and give up everything for Jesus. And maybe for some of you guys, you're just raising hands saying, hey, maybe this could be true. And maybe some of you guys are in here and you're just observing. But one thing that I know is that the Spirit of God is relentlessly and beautifully pursuing each and every soul in this place and it's not to place a burden on us, but it's to take a burden off of us and to give us the gift of the gospel of new life. 
C.S. Lewis says it like this, the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self. And that this process goes on very far inside. Simply a process of having our natural self changed into Christ's self. Three things um, as we get ready to leave today before we pray. If, you, if you're here and, and maybe you are a follower of Jesus and you're like, well, what? How do I walk this out? How do I apply this to my life? Just three things to consider. Number one, would we all have a greater desire of Jesus? You see, the Spirit of God didn't begin working on Nicodemus's heart in that conversation. He was already working when he started following him in the middle of the night. Would we have a greater desire of Jesus? Number two, would we have greater openness to the Holy Spirit? Whatever he's doing. I think all of this ties into our third one. Would we have greater grace for the process? Some of you guys need to have grace for yourself. You, if you're like, man, I should be farther along than what I am, grace to you. Some of us need to have more grace for a family member or a friend. And that grace will only come from when we can receive it ourselves. Would we have a greater grace for understanding that this is a work of the Spirit, this new birth, although can, so much can happen in a moment. This is still a beautiful process of that God is doing in every single heart who's willing to place their trust and belief in Jesus, wherever you're at in that state. So let's do this this morning. Would you stand to your feet with me? Let's pray. Let's get our hearts open just to the Holy Spirit, what he wants to do and the new life he's bringing in us. Father, I'm convinced there is not a single person in this room or in this city, there's not a single person that exists that you don't desire this for. Lord, it is, it is your deepest passion for every single heart to move from, Lord Jesus, a place trapped within our, our, our natural state to a, the gift of rebirth, of being born again. And Lord, we, we, we're, we repent for making this, for oversimplifying this or making this some sort of uh, a guilt-driven decision. Lord, we we submit to your Holy Spirit as the one who brings this new birth. And Lord, I pray that right now through your Holy Spirit working in every heart in this place, Lord, that you would move us from doubt to belief. Lord, that you would move us from fear into hope. Lord, that you'd move us from works into grace. Lord, that you would give us grace even for that process of you moving us along and moving us into this new life and new birth that you've given to us on the cross. Lord, I pray even for me personally that I would be someone who would look at you, the sacrifice you've made, and to be willing to say, you're worth it all, Jesus. Have it all. Because life, there is, there is no life apart from you. 
So Lord, I thank you for the hearts right now that you are already stirring and revitalizing and regenerating through your spirit. And Lord, I pray for those people who feel like they're behind or trapped or stuck. Lord, I pray that they would just receive your grace in the process. Or that you just continue through your goodness to draw them towards yourself. Lord, we love you so much. Thank you for the life, the abundant life you've promised us through your son. Believe in you, Lord. I thank you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us here on the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsaniego.com.